Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously... Then we are the natural selection. On today's show... Timmy, you're going to love where you're going. Yeah. <laughs> Just mind the crickets on yeah, the floor. Exactly. <laughs> They'll eat you. <laughs> He's like the, the winter soldier of horses. <laughs> you know, that is a serious animal. Yeah. Wait, is this a sequel? This is a sequel. What? This is our first sequel. A sequel fight. So, we spoke on this podcast before about the concept of de-extinction. Specifically around Ice Age animals and how you might be able to take DNA from animals like mammoths that are found locked in the ice and bring them back from extinction. Mm -hmm. It's all in season two back Mm -hmm. there if you want to listen to that sort of stuff well today i want to talk about something on a similar line but how genetic techniques are being used for conservation and some real successful news that's sort of linked to this so i can't remember this is something we've mentioned on the podcast before but i want to talk about frozen zoos now you familiar with the concept of a frozen zoo i mean isn't it just all the stuff that's come out the ice no, so a frozen. Oh, let me take another guess. Go on, have another it's swing. not the. There's that seed bank. It's not that, but is it close to? Is it like yeah. frozen samples of exactly that stuff? Yeah. yeah. So a frozen zoo is basically where genetic material from animals is cryogenically frozen. Yeah. Okay? So you would take the DNA, the sperm, egg cells, embryos, etc., and they're all stored in tanks of liquid nitrogen at temperatures down to almost minus 200 degrees Celsius, okay? Now, the point of frozen zoos is to preserve this genetic material. But when the first one was set up in San Diego, the San Diego frozen zoo was set up in 1972 by a chap called Kurt Benischirk, Benischke, he was German, and I am famously terrible at pronouncing things on this podcast, but we're going to call him from here on out, Kurt. (laughs) When Kurt set up the San Diego Frozen Zoo, there was actually no technology around at the time to actually make use of any of these genetic samples. You could freeze them, but you couldn't actually do anything with them. But Kurt was so sure that the technology would exist in the future that he ploughed on with his vision and began to freeze samples of animals, rare animals, in the San Diego Zoo. So what's the point of preserving all this stuff? Now, the thing that often takes the headlines when it comes to talk of frozen zoos and this sort of thing is how it can be used to bring animals back from extinction. Now, we've spoken about in that episode that we did about de-extinction, particularly focused on mammoth, we've spoken about the case of the Pyrenean ibex before, which was an animal that went extinct in 2000, but was brought back three years later using frozen genetic material from the last ibex to create an embryo that was implanted into a goat. The goat gave birth. Sadly, the the animal only lived a few minutes before dying, but you can see how it might work. Now, that's what often takes the headlines, is we can use these frozen zoos to bring back animals that no longer exist. So whilst de-extinction is the big sexy thing that gets a lot of the attention and is an extreme case of how the frozen zoos might be used, as like a zoological fail-safe almost, as like this sort of last save on a game that you can always go back to. (laughs) Life on Earth version (laughs) 6, do not touch final one, please. (laughs) But I want to talk about uh, some... I want to talk about some other examples of how they've been used to fight extinction, but before the animal has actually gone fully extinct. Mm-hmm. Okay? 
So you know that animal X is critically endangered. You manage to save a small population of them, whether that's in the wild or in captivity, and you want to allow them to breed to repopulate. But what's the problem, Roddy Shaw? You you want to say the, the animal X. So animal X has gone down to critically low levels, but you've managed to save them. Whether they're in the wild or whether they're in captivity, you know they're not going to be killed any longer. But those animals aren't safe from extinction. Why? Population's not at breeding age. It's past breeding capacity. What happens if you've only got a small number of animals... Oh, genetic bottleneck? Yes. Yeah, okay. Genetic diversity yeah. is incredibly important yeah, okay. when it comes to saving animals. Because you've only got a small population, very quickly, they're going to start mating with each other and you're going to start getting effects of inbreeding. Now, this can amplify certain genetic characteristics and it can make them more susceptible to disease. It can make them less fertile um, because evolution favors a broad genetic code because it makes you more adaptable yep. if you've all got similar genes and a disease comes along it can just pick the code to your genetics wipe you all out whereas if you've got a much broader genetic code it makes you more adaptable to you can be naturally immune to things if there's a drought there might be some animals that can genetically survive with less water etc etc yep. and that allows animals to ride out some of these things so to explain a little bit of how genetic diversity can impact on animals, I wanted to just delve into a little case study of this. Do you know which well-known species of animal is one of the most genetically undiverse animals in the world? Cheetahs. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I came across this absolutely fascinating journal article, uh, and I want to give you the highlights of it. So cheetahs were brought into zoos and breeding facilities uh, in the 1950s to the 1980s is when mm -hmm. they were really attempting to breed cheetahs. But they were unusual in that they bred really poorly in captivity, rarely exceeding 15% success of any attempted pairing. Okay, So whenever they tried to pair cheetahs together, 15% of the time they were successful, the rest of the time they failed. If they did mate successfully, cub mortality was 30 to 40% higher than almost all other zoo animals, which made it very, very hard to sustain a captive population. Male cheetahs also had really low sperm counts, with up to three quarters of their sperm being mutated. They either had like bent tails or massive heads or tiny heads or whatever. The sperm cells of the cheetahs was clearly mm. unusual. Uh, and this is all indicators of them being sterile, basically yep. being largely sterile. Another thing that was noticed, this is, I think this is mental, was that Cheetahs showed no rejection of skin grafts from other cheetahs. What a weird third... <laughs> they were like, these cheetahs aren't breeding. Let's start fucking swapping their skin around. <laughs> I don't think it was quite like that. But Who they made that leap? <laughs> you know, their sperm is really low. What if we stick a bit of that one on that one? <laughs> I don't think it was quite the same cause and effect. But they noticed that when cheetahs had to go through some sort of skin graft surgery if you took some skin off another cheetah and put it on to another cheetah the cheetah that had just had the skin graft had no reaction it did not recognize that that skin was any sort of foreign organism now if you if i was to get a skin graft from you mm. my body would be like hang on that's not from around here shenanigans and it would uh, it, it would um 
attack it. Yeah, reject it. it. it would, yeah, it would induce an immune response. Yeah. That's the words I'm looking for. So are we saying then that contrary to leopards, a cheetah can very easily change their spots? <laughs> we are indeed. Yes, very good. So the cheetahs just fully accepted this. They did not recognize the skin of another cheetah as a foreign body. And all these things pointed to the fact that cheetahs have an astonishingly similar genome. In fact, now they've been geno genome sequenced, it's revealed that they have only between 0.1 to 4% of the overall genetic variation seen in most living creatures. So they only have at maximum 4% of the genetic diversity seen in most living creatures much lower than even highly inbred domestic dog and cat breeds. So, for example, among all species, there is a baseline level of intraspecific variation. Yeah. That you accept that me and you are this different, you accept that me and someone else are this different, and you get all that out and you're like, okay, there's a hundred variation things. Yep. And in dogs, there are 200 variation things, and in this, there's three. You take all of that... And cheetahs are at 4% of that normal variation yeah. level. Seen in most living species, exactly, yeah. Wow. They're hugely similar, even more so than when we take, you know, dog breeds and cat breeds mm. and we breed them with each other to maintain traits. And often some, particularly dog breeds, can end up with all sorts of heart defects or whatever because we amplify those genes together. We amplify those genes by breeding those breeds with each other to maintain the characteristics that we like. But that can inadvertently involved in also uh, creating, making them more susceptible to disease. Yeah, well, I know that pugs have like pandas are forever the poster child of conservation mm. pugs have less genetic diversity than pandas i know that so like yeah technically yeah pugs are more endangered than pandas yeah. but we but did create them no yeah yeah but what i'm then saying is so if we're then saying that cheetahs are less diverse oh, yeah. than that again then yeah wow yeah it, it's it's Astonishing. And a negative of this was seen in 1983 when feline coronavirus mm -hmm. ripped through a cheetah breeding facility and caused a 60% mortality. Jesus. Because they're so similar. Yeah. You know, they all, they, if one suffers from it, chances are a lot of them are going to suffer. They're just from photocopies it. of them. Yeah. So, what happened? How did the cheetah get to this point? And it basically turns out that looking back through the genomes, cheetahs seem to have suffered from two population bottlenecks. Now, this is where the population gets down really, really small, and then they have to build back up. And it forces the genes of that species into a relatively few number of individuals, which then it repopulates up from. Now, one was around 100,000 years ago. I did not know this, but cheetahs' ancestors came from North America, from the plains of North America. 100,000 years ago. I knew that there were historically, like evolutionary historically, cheetahs in North America. Yeah. But I didn't know they came from there. Yeah. Because there's the pronghorn antelope in North America uh -huh. and no one can work. It can run this... There's one species of antelope in North America which can run faster than any possible need or reason as to why it can go this fast. But historically, if you put cheetahs into the picture, it's like, ah, it can run this fast because it had to escape from that. That's really Now nice. the cheetah's not there. You've just got this antelope <laughs> fucking steaming around the place. Um, yeah, no, that's really nice. But yeah, so when the, when the cheetahs left North America via the Bering Strait, mm -hmm. um, their population went down 
and then that was one of their genetic bottlenecks. The other genetic bottleneck that they suffered was around 12,000 years ago, the end of the Ice Age and the Great Pleistocene Mammal Extinction which was either brought about through dramatic climate change or human hunting. But basically, they went through another population bottleneck. So they shrunk the populations at both of these times, reducing the genetic diversity, which has left us with the situation that we have today, low productive rates of cheetahs and vulnerability to disease. Now, I do want to clarify that this does not mean that cheetahs were doomed for extinction. We are by far their biggest threat. Like, they were doing fine, even though they are very genetically undiverse they were doing okay before we started coming along and shrinking their habitat and shooting them and all this sort of stuff yeah, okay time. but it does mean that they would be more vulnerable to extinction events interestingly one thing i did found as potentially a evolutionary strategy to help cheetahs maintain more genetic diversity females can have a litter of cubs all fathered by different males so they're able to mate with multiple males and can give birth to a litter of cheetah cubs, but each one can have a different father, which has been discovered not that long ago and is a way that one female can mix up the genetic diversity of her, uh, of her cubs, of her litter. So when we think of conservation, we have to think not just of individual animals and not, oh, we've got six cheetahs left we've got whatever we have to think of the genetics within those animals mm -hmm. uh, and attempts by humans to increase genetic diversity is called genetic rescue and here's an example of genetic rescue when the florida panther population was declining and suffering from inbreeding depression then eight panthers from texas were chucked out into florida the genetic variation went up and a significant increase in population growth followed. So just by mixing up those genetics, introducing some animals from outside, you can stop a decline, even if you've protected the animals, yeah. the negative effects of inbreeding can stop. Yep. So anyway, what if you don't have any unrelated live animals left to release? Let's go back to our frozen zoos. Because if you can bring lost genetics back into a population then you can suddenly, miraculously increase the amount of genes on offer to a species. All you would need is a vessel for those genes to proliferate in. All you need... Like an aerosol. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> little asthma inhaler. All, all you need is a clone. Ooh. So, let's meet our next endangered animal, the... Should have looked how to pronounce this. Pre the wild horse. Przewalski's. There we go. So this is a horse that's originally native to the steppe grasslands of Central Asia, but competition with livestock, hunting, capture of foals for zoological collections, military activities and harsh winters has meant that by 1969, only a single stallion was seen in the wild and they were very soon after declared extinct. Military activity suggests like the horses themselves were kind of <laughs> at combat with donkeys or something and they had and a con they lost yeah, conscription of their own foals and lost, you know, <laughs> the yak war. <laughs> it was the horses of Vietnam. <laughs> so the horse had gone extinct in the wild. But thankfully, some still exist in captivity. But these are often being kept in small numbers by individual zoos, which led to those things we've already talked about, inbreeding, reduced fertility, blah, blah, blah. So coordination was, coordination was then set up to swap horses around to increase the genetic diversity of this captive population. Some now have been reintroduced to the wild, so great. But conservationists are always looking for ways to bolster the population. How can we make it 
more genetic diverse, how can we make it more resistant? So let's wind the clock back to 1975 and a wild horse stallion that's just been born in a zoo in the UK. He's called Koporovich, and he would go on to be moved to America, where he would die in 1998. Now, he had been responsible for substantially increasing the genetic diversity of the captive population of these wild horses when he was alive. He was discovered to have more unique alleles than any other living horse, and they bred him with lots of females, really increased the genetic diversity. It did wonders for the captive wild horse population. And his ego. <laughs> That's what it did wonders well, for. Well, <laughs> imagine your ego when it's such a shame that he died. Let's just bring him back. Oh. <laughs> because due to concerns over the loss of genetic diversity from the wild horse population and the anticipation of the development of new cloning techniques, tissue from the stallion was cryopreserved in San Diego's frozen zoo. Once again, they didn't have anything they could do with it back then, but they thought, let's keep it on ice. He's like the, the winter soldier of horses. <laughs> it's like, keep him frozen, and then when he's needed, just defrost him for a kind of covert mission, you know? <laughs> in 2020, a domestic horse implanted with an embryo gave birth to an exact clone of Kaporovich. 21 years after his death he was back and most importantly were his genes so this cloned horse now named kurt after kurt who set up the san diego zoo oh, yes kurt <laughs> the idea is kurt to go on and become the main breeder in the herd at san diego when he reaches sexual maturity which he was born in 2020 they reach sexual maturity after three to four years so he could be starting this very year he's not the winter soldier he's gandalf <laughs> <laughs> wake it coming back like i return to you now yeah. at the turn of the tide <laughs> so the hope is and everyone's going kaporovich and he goes i remember that name <laughs> No, I'm not Kaporovich. I am Kurt. <laughs> so this is an example of how cloning can have real-world conservation benefits and mm. is actively being used to bring back, you know, an animal that we were did wonders for the species. Shame it died, but did it really? Because now it's back. And on the similar lines, just one more example, perhaps an even more extreme example when it comes to um, bringing back useful genes, because there's an animal called the black-footed ferret yep. of North America that was declared extinct in the wild in 1979 thanks to habitat loss, human-induced disease, poisoning prey, etc., etc. Uh, the classics. The, you know, the, the royal the, flush. <laughs> the human highlight reel. Yeah. <laughs> In 1981, a very small population was found still living in Wyoming. But as you might expect, they had cripplingly low genetic diversity. Not great at all. And in 1985, canine distemper virus devastated this population. A couple of years later, they were like, we cannot just rely on this population surviving in the wild. We need to start a captive breeding program. So they collected 18 animals from the wild. And as you can imagine... Only using 18 animals to build a population, very low genetic diversity. Mm. But fast forward to 2020, and the same organisations that had brought back Kurt, the horse, are at it again. 
Except this time, they're cloning a female ferret that died in the mid-1980s. Most crucially, this female had left no living descendants. So whereas Kaporovich had mated with lots and lots of horses and his genes were out there, but they were so good we wanted round two, this female's genes were not in the present day population. It's free real estate. <laughs> <laughs> no competition on the field. <laughs> She's got them good genes. Yeah. <laughs> so in, on December the 10th, a female black-footed ferret called Elizabeth Ann was born containing three times more genetic diversity than any black-footed ferret alive today. So just drastically swinging the tide when it comes to the amount of resilience that we can build into populations. So that ferret is now, I imagine, out there living its best life, breeding with other ferrets, and introducing a whole new level of genetic diversity into that population. So just two examples there of how what to many of us is still a very sci-fi style uh, practice of cloning animals can actually be used with real world benefit and the hope is that by putting these animals genetic material on ice even if populations go down to very very small levels we can aim to rebuild them both through protecting individuals but also protecting their dna mental mad isn't it absolutely insane yeah there is a Near my office on my walk home, there's a tiny little sort of, I guess it's not really a nature reserve in the sense that it's like, like it is tiny. It's like a kind of private, like a, I don't know what it is. But anyway, I think of it as a nature reserve just because it's such a haven, like mm. such an urban yeah. area, this to have this green space. And it's quite amazing how sort of grown it is and everything. I think it's called like Cambly Street Nature Park. Anyway, um, and it's got a little pond in it. And I mean, it is literally pond some vegetation and then a wall and then the other side of the wall is like main road and you wouldn't know this place and the pond has frogs in it yeah and this is just i guess one example i can think of a few other kind of like tiny little pockets of green throughout london which have a pond and i mean what you know the the shard the big yeah, yeah glass yeah. sauron's tower in <laughs> yeah. london there's a place i mean it's five minute walk from the bottom of there again another like tiny little park with a pond that's got newts in it mm-hmm and the the pond that i started i know it's got frogs in it and on my walk to work i check certainly now going into spring i look every morning have they woken up and you know yeah anyway but i've always wondered like what is the di- like yeah where are these frogs going yeah like where are they going yeah what have they but i mean it also you know we think of carving up habitat as this very grand you know we're putting a highway through the rainforest kind of thing but yeah. i mean potentially i mean like not to go like kind of like dawn of time type thing but that population of frogs could have been there oh yeah for a yeah i can't see them migrating into there they were probably there and everything's been carved up around them yeah yeah and and this is the problem like you can get you know you might you might then save you might then save that population and you can do everything in your power to make sure no more of those frogs die but unless they get new frogs coming into that population they will fizzle out yeah and we're seeing that with habitat fragmentation all over the world we're seeing the fact that animal populations will reach a critical level at which point no matter what you do there may be no saving they'll just suffer from inbreeding depression 
and their genetics will mean that they become less and less fertile. Breeding becomes ever harder. Um, any disease that they might be exposed to, any climatic changes that they might be exposed to, they're less resilient to fight off. There's only so much you can do when it comes to saving those animals. So that's why this sort of frozen zoo technology of being able to artificially stick some genes back in there that can really like blow open the genetic diversity can be so important and has been for at least two species so what i need is i need to find a frog and keep it in my freezer yeah. and then whenever i pass a pond which looks like it needs a little bit more juice you know in the blend yeah. defrost my frog and sort of you know say the kind of like get out my little book and be like novichov <laughs> <laughs> say the winter soldier activation words and have my little frog hop off drop yeah. it off in the pond come back a week later and he's like mission accomplished back into the fridge exactly <laughs> <laughs> waiting for the next mission we are back with the new segment which jack this week I'm calling Birder Out Than In. <laughs> okay. That's right. We're back. Thanks to the fantastic support of Birder, the bird watching app. B-I-R-D-A. Exactly. And for those of you who missed the last two episodes or who haven't heard of the app before, it's an app that takes, you know, game things like challenges and hanging out with your friends and the online social media kind of, you know, getting to know people and puts that onto bird watching. And it's very cool. It's yeah, it's it's a really great community building platform dedicated to people looking for birds. Exactly, exactly. We've both been using it. It's fantastic. You can find out what birds are near you. Um, you can discover new bird watching locations, which is cool. You can not just log a single bird, but set up a little session for yourself. I know. Like I know the other day I was leaving the office and I was ridiculously sort of pent up from a long day and I cut through a little nature spot and I sat down and I sort of said to myself, I'm going to take 10 minutes with the app, logged all the birds I saw. Nice. It proper, yeah. Yeah, like, just chill you out. Yeah. I've known Jack for uh, five, six years, something like that. Yeah, coming up to. I've known Birder for two months. I don't want to say that Birder has got me into bird watching <laughs> faster than Jack ever did. <laughs> sure sounds like that's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not not saying it either. I tell you, one of the things I really like about Birder as well is that they are partnered with the Global Biodiversity Information Facility so that the sightings that you log on there are open access for scientists to be able to use. And, you know, not only is it great, like you say, for your own sort of personal enjoyment of birds mm. but it can be helpful for scientists trying to understand distributions and all that sort of stuff as well fantastic and like i said you know it can show you locations of birds but it's got a whole library of birds built into it and they come with fun facts and this week because it is john audubon day mm. over in the states for our american listeners we're going over to america and the bird we've got over there is the acorn woodpecker. Yeah, these are really cool birds. These are very cool birds. For those who are familiar with Woody the Woodpecker, the cartoon character is very, you know, American cartoon, very American. It's They think that he was based on this bird, oh. or at least his call was, because he had a very... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but these are very cool birds. I didn't know anything about them until... I started looking at it through the app. Had you? I'm guessing you've the, heard of them. The thing I knew about acorn woodpeckers was that they're called the acorn woodpecker because of what they do with acorns. Right. They store them in colossal numbers. Okay. Ten? No, I think the maximum that have ever been found in... So what they do is, when you think about 
storing an acorn, you may immediately think of things like squirrels, which bury them in the ground. You may think mm-hmm. of uh, perhaps other rodents that might bury them in a stump or a hole or something like that. But also jays, bird, yeah, bury them in the ground. Yeah. Right. Acorn woodpeckers... <laughs> store them in this extraordinary, almost sort of like modern art installation way where they'll take a whole trunk of a tree and wedge the acorn into the bark. So they can have up to 50,000 acorns on one tree and they're just like studded. Yeah. It's like the whole tree just becomes studded with acorns. Yeah, and and this, this collection is called their granary and... They're finding a place to store the acorns. Mm. They're preparing it by pecking out a hole and getting it ready for the acorn. Then they find the acorn. Mm-hmm. They put the acorn in the hole. And as we said, you know, they, they're quite communal. They do a kind of communal uh, breeding situation. So they do live in groups and they'll build up this huge granary. But not only that, but as the acorns dry out, and this is the bit which always, like I hear of an animal doing a thing and I'm like, oh, amazing. And then I don't even think of a problem that they would have to solve because of that thing. So as the acorns dry out, they shrink. And so the woodpeckers have to manage the granary. Oh. So as the acorns are in there, they'll move them to like smaller holes so really? that the acorns aren't just falling out. Yeah. So imagine having 50,000 acorns and just having to check, <gasps> is it about to fall out of the hole? Oh, wow. Yeah. So they're not only building the art installation they're managing the art installation that's very cool and of course this is a way you can store a huge volume of food to see you through lean times without having to remember the location of a million different acorns that you've buried you know even thought so things like jays and squirrels burying individual acorns um have to remember where all those locations are whereas the acorn woodpecker it finds them, but then it only has to remember one central location of its granary, and then it can harvest all the acorns it needs from there. Exactly. And the woodpeckers can be found throughout the western coast of the USA and Mexico, right the way, quite a way down bit into Mexico, into Central America, Yosemite National Park, and many other sites. You can check out where people have seen them. If you are listening in the States, check out the bird app, search for acorn woodpeckers. You can see where they're popping up around you, and it's a great way to learn more about the species and find out where you can see them. They are one of my ornithological bucket list things is to see an acorn woodpecker granary. So if you're near if you're near where they live, get out there and see one. It's time for that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent creatures and we pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death. Now today's animal has been submitted by Daniel Banks and it is the leatherback turtle. Okay. Now, let's get to know our foe. Hailing from the oceans of pretty much everywhere, including well into the Arctic Circle, the leatherback is a titan of the reptile world. The largest non-crocodilian reptile in the world, reaching lengths of up to 1.8 metres and weights of 500 kilos. It's an absolute dinosaur of a beast. Mm. It has a thick, leathery skin instead of a bony shell and is a separate genus from the rest of the sea turtles. It's a giant dark grey black behemoth of the sea with a scattering of white blotches and spots across it. They have the most hydrodynamic body of any sea turtle, being a sort of large teardrop shape that they are, with large front flippers that can grow up to 2.7 metres long. They roam the oceans eating jellyfish, man war cephalopods, and lots of other miscellaneous gloopy sea things. They have no teeth 
Instead, having points on the upper lip and load of insane backwards-facing spines in their throat to help them swallow food and to stop prey escaping once caught. Leatherbacks are one of the deepest diving marine animals, known to go over 1.2 kilometers down into waters where the temperature can be as low as 0.4 degrees. In extreme situations, they can stay down there for as long as an hour. So what about weaknesses? Well, there's not really that much that bothers a leatherback turtle. Although great white sharks, tiger sharks, and our how many geese favorites, the orca, have all had a go, nesting females have also been recorded being hunted by jaguars in the Americas when they're out on the beaches to nest. They can fight back though, and a medium-sized adult was once observed chasing a shark that had attempted to bite it and then turned its aggression and attacked the boat containing the humans that were observing this interaction. So, Roddy Shaw, bearing all that in mind, how many leatherback turtles are too many leatherback turtles? This is a definite dinosaur. They're insane, aren't they? Like... They're wild. Yeah. And, and, and although, you know, they are sea turtles, like I said there, they're a different genus, and they do feel very different to the other turtles. Yeah, I mean, these are... Whatever, like, you know when there's a kind of, not trident, but they're like, oh, we're going to invest one billion pounds into a new state-of-the-art aircraft carrier. Yeah. Or there's a kind of like, we've developed a new battleship and it will be the flagship of our Navy. This is nature's, <laughs> like, just warship of the sea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, there are, you know, other things might be faster, they might be smarter, they might have sharper teeth, but in terms of just an absolute <laughs> unit, which, actually, no, do you know what this is? Sorry, it's not the newfangled battleship, mm. it's like a tank. It's, it's yeah. the... That's like, not been bested in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This model works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, take your Wi-Fi, fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> Leatherback turtles are communicating by semaphore. Okay, they are... Ever seen one? No, have no. you? No, I've never seen a sea turtle oh. in the wild. But uh, yeah, seen around the coast of the UK. Leather, yeah. Leatherbacks. Yeah. yeah. I didn't realise how far up into the Arctic Circle they can go. And yet, they can dive down into water temperatures as low as 0.4 degrees celsius it's pretty hardcore for a reptile it's pretty intense isn't it and stay down there for half an hour or an they hour they can stay down there so in extreme situations they can stay down for as long as an hour underwater mm. yeah they're one of the one of the deepest diving marine mammals only things like sperm whale and stuff can go further down sorry do you want to say that sentence one more time did i say marine mammals yeah you did <laughs> they're one of the deepest <laughs> That's staying in. Oh, dear. <laughs> um, cool. So, right. I feel like there's a very easy cop-out here, which mm. I don't want to do, because I could take on billions of sea turtle hatchlings. <laughs> like... <laughs> As, you know... As nature intended. <laughs> As crabs and gulls yeah. and yeah. things regularly do. Yeah. And, you know, light breezes. <laughs> Passing Sudoku puzzles. <laughs> Doesn't take much. I know, exactly. So we're not going to do that. I feel like we have to take on a big one. Is there anything in... I found it interesting that, you know, they, uh, that they don't have a bony shell. It is they, interesting. It's thick, leathery skin. Is there anything in that? I know a guy who knows a guy. Hmm. Which is, which sounds made up, but is not. I have a friend, and his friend is a professional tanner. Ooh. 
So like runs a leather. It's a great shade of bronze. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just every day he's a rich mahogany. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, and and he, I think he had to like move to Mexico, or had to, but move to Mexico, or set. I don't know. Like, where's where is leather big? <laughs> I feel like finding leather because you get leather from cows, yeah, and then there are. I think now there's like fish leather is there basically it's it's as a waste pro as a way to use a waste product better because when they make like smoked salmon in the big factories they cut off like load you know there's just loads and loads of skin right, left okay. over and people are working out like how to use that to you know uh, so it's not going to waste kind of things so there's fish leather there's leather leather there's plant-based leather there's this leather there's that leather I'm yet to see someone try and flog me a belt <laughs> made from a leatherback turtle. Oh, it's right there. And it's in the name. There's literally no- nothing we make leather from has leather in the name. No one ever looks out of a field and goes, look at the leatherback cows. <laughs> you, know. you could skip the whole tanning process. Like you, yeah. you could skip the whole leather making process and just go straight to the bags. Yeah, you hollow out a leatherback turtle, you've got instantly... <laughs> Your return on investment. I know. <laughs> Ikea should look at this. Instead of those bags they're putting out there, those big blue hold-all-everything, just hollow a turtle. <laughs> so all that being said, I feel like we're heading in a direction. <laughs> How do you, What do they like? They like jellyfish, don't they? Yeah, so they have those... Have you seen the pictures of the yeah. esophagus of a uh, yeah. leatherback? Yeah, they have yeah. these insane backwards facing rows of spines that go all the way down the throat which is basically uh to stop any prey being able to escape and they'll eat jellyfish uh man of war cephalopods basically lots of yeah like i say miscellaneous anything that can eat a portuguese man of war is yeah is not to be messed around with (laughs) you know that is a serious animal yeah so i've fought a portuguese man of war Mm -hmm. maybe i turn around and the turtle's there but then i'm in the middle of the english channel and nowhere near a leather factory (laughs) but on my way to france Mm -hmm. french fashion house maybe i finish okay i am swimming the wait is this a sequel this is a sequel what this is our first sequel a sequel fight i know i've swum the channel to fight the portuguese man of war and you're covered in a thick layer of goose fat exactly stop to try and stop any stings from the man of war from getting you indeed right i turn around and notice a leatherback turtle is pursuing me now yeah because i've taken out the man of war it's pissed off you said that they clearly hold a grudge because when it went for the shark and then people were following it it was like leave i'm going after you you can fuck off as well (laughs) exactly exactly right so this this animal is definitely pissy yeah okay so it's seen me i've ruined its lunch it's like all right dickhead let's go it's now following me i'm now swimming across the channel away <laughs> from a leatherback turtle okay yeah do you think you can out out swim a leatherback turtle i'm gonna yeah yeah i'm backing myself here <laughs> i'm out swimming the leatherback across the channel i get to france and it is paris fashion week mm-hmm. and i arrive covered in goose fat <laughs> <laughs> and everyone thinks it's the boldest look of the season <laughs> So it immediately gains the attention uh-huh. of the fashion buyers, the fashion savants, the the you know the who's who of Paris Fashion Week yeah. is coming up to talk to me, <laughs> sodden, <laughs> covered in goose fat, 
and I just turned around to them and I because you know that that leather back to it didn't have to chase me I'm now pissed okay mm. I did I was you know you've got the motive exactly I've now got vengeance on my mind <laughs> and I tell all these fashion houses do you know what actually is the next big thing it's not covering yourself in goose fat and swimming the channel no 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 it's actually leatherback turtle leather <laughs> do you guys know there's a whole animal out there i know with made of leather <laughs> already <laughs> it's pre-done <laughs> you can skip so many steps <laughs> you can just put a model inside of its shell yeah so I was originally going to say I'm going to take out one, but following this to its natural conclusion, I think what's actually happening <laughs> is not only is its first sequel fight, but it's the first one where I'm dooming an entire species. <laughs> the answer is all of them, with the help of the world. <laughs> with the help of rampant consumerism and unethical fashion, the answer is every single leatherback turtle in existence. Through the clever reveal of pointing out to the world that it's got leather in the name. <laughs> Take that, nature. So I've got a question here from Siri on Instagram, who asks, you're interviewing teen animal applicants to babysit your kids. Who gets the gig? Okay. So this is the classic, you know, first sort of job, teenager... Parents taking their first, you know, trip out, date night, interviewing teenage animals to babysit their kids. Who's it going to be? So we're, we're holding on the teenage point. That's it's in the question from Siri. It is in the question from Siri. I guess I'm just going through in my head. I've, ne- I've never had to employ a babysitter. Nor have I. Right. So I'm just kind of working through some things here Mm -hmm. and realizing that if you're employing a teenager they probably have no experience looking after kids oh i see versus a very experienced mother Mm. animal Mm -hmm. well i think we could talk about you know we could talk about the adolescence of animals that may come from species that have an instinctual care you know we could talk about animals that do look after their kids and talk about whether the adolescence would live up to that yep are we enacting the third law of geese? Which one? No great apes. No great. I mean, absolutely no chimpanzees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, you're going to be seeing that on the news before you get home. Yeah. Limb from limb. <laughs> It'll be like that, you know, first bit of Attenborough footage where they caught it pulling a colobus monkey apart in the canopy or whatever and just handing it around to its pals. <laughs> uh, but uh, talking about apes, and if we are enacting the law, then fair enough. But... Um, Gorillas, you know, there's the there's the babies that fall into gorilla pits. And then, to my knowledge, I can't think of one that's gone really south, apart from Harambe. But but that, that suggests did, that I'm going to employ the gorilla, and then a passing zookeeper is going to shoot my babysitter. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. But there is a YouTube video, a very, very watched YouTube video, uh, where a kid falls into a pit with gorillas in it, and the gorilla is sort of very, like, caring of the kid and sort of quite inquisitive and just poking it and stroking it and not ripping it limb from limb, as a chimpanzee would. Yeah, they're so much nicer. And orangutans, I feel, would be too aloof. It turned up stoned. A teenage orangutan is turning up stoned off its head. Incense, crystals, (laughs) mushrooms. You don't want, yeah, unreliable. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, can I change the size of my kid? Uh, if you would like. Well, like if I wanted a bee. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Let's let, be let, really tiny. Let's open it out to. Let's open it out to the whole animal kingdom. Otherwise, yeah. it has to be kind of kid size. Yeah. Okay. No. <laughs> let, let's 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 uh, yeah. Do away with size. Hmm. So it depends a little bit on my kid, their character, their temperament, yeah. who I think is going to gel with them. Right. Um, it depends. You know, do I think my child needs a lot of care? Do I think my child needs maybe entertainment? For example, okay. when I was young, mm. when I was growing up, uh, we had a babysitter who was not teenage. She was it was like a parent's friend kind of thing, um, and I must have been I don't know, like eight or something like this, and. When she would babysit, she would, you know, we'd be looked after. She'd also potter about and do some house tasks and bits and bobs like that, right? But then occasionally she would not be able to babysit and she'd send her daughter and her daughter probably was the teenager. We'd just play Lego. Uh, Now, I I know from my mum's point of view, she hated it when the daughter came. (laughs) (laughs) Because she would just come back and there'd be Lego everywhere. Yeah, and she'd be banking on like, God damn it, now I've got to do my own ironing and (laughs) stuff like that, right? Okay. Um, So I'm kind of thinking, is there anything there? I'm thinking, I'm coming back and I don't know why and I don't know how and the kid might die. But you know those fish that keep the kids in their own mouth? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, are they... I don't know whether a few species do it. I think a lot of them do. The words groupers and cichlids are coming to mind. I think there's cichlids that do it. I have a third word. Ooh. Rass. Rass. Sure. <laughs> let's just spin the wheel and invite whichever. Yeah. Let's interview them all and say, which of you three keeps babies in your mouth? Yeah. Now, like I said, kid would have to be really small. Kid would be underwater. Yeah. Kid would be in a tank mm. in a mouth. Mm-hmm. But kid's not going to accidentally run out in front of traffic. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so that kid is secure. <laughs> the babysitter knows where that child is. At all times. At all times, yeah. <laughs> and the babysitter better not swallow. <laughs> uh, okay. I'm sure there are birds. There's always yeah, a bird. Yeah, although birds, like most birds, take great care of their kids for a short period of time and then they're, then are just like, fly bitch, and just <laughs> leave them alone. So, you know, a bird, I think you get a blue tit and it looks after your kid for two hours and then it's just like, what, why aren't you independent yet? <laughs> and it just goes. So if, you're, if your date is running to three hours long, yeah. then... Like a swallow, it's just like, I've, I've got to get going. Yeah. Like Africa calls. Yeah. <laughs> sort yourself out. It's just a note when you come back, sorry, had to migrate. <laughs> so I think birds, I mean, there are some birds that do take uh, long care of their kids. So things like swans and cranes will teach their... Uh, teach their kids how to migrate and all that sort of stuff and they have quite an extended period looking after them as self, uh, looking after them as a family unit but most birds uh, is very minimal when it comes to animal care mm. so yeah octopus you'd just come back and it'd be dead because they literally just have their kids and then die so it would be like as soon as you walk back in it would be like my purpose is served <laughs> instantly die <laughs> Hmm. Suriname toad. Oh, the back thing. Yeah. Just explain the Suriname toad. So the Suriname toad, uh, they lay their eggs and then use their back legs to maneuver their eggs onto their back, and then the skin on their back kind of 
grows up and around the eggs in a sort of fleshy Swiss cheese backpack kind of situation. Because it's not like the skins, it's this weird film something. Um, if you've got that uh, like phobia where you can't look at crumpets, don't yeah. look at this because they're like a f- wet frog egg crumpet. Um, That's the title of the episode right there. Yeah. <laughs> I think we found it but <laughs> very similar to the fish with the mouth the kids going nowhere i think I'm, I'm i'm reflecting on i think i'm imagining my kid needing to be contained yeah <laughs> that's what i'm taking away no enrichment no that just keep them fucking still <laughs> any marsupial yeah marsupial is a good one yeah again contained yeah i think in terms of in a real going all the way back adolescent Mm-hmm. type situation i do think it's got to be a quote unquote oh, i don't even want to say higher i was going to say higher mm. and i don't really know what that meant but i think i mean like intelligent we're like adolescent they're actually like a, what is a teenage mouse <laughs> thinking you know like there's yeah. no there's just ba- it's, pre- it's pregnant itself exactly there's baby and then there's yeah. getting busy yeah but like an elephant, I feel like a teen. I think mm. I think they have a teenage situation. Yeah. I think you could give some. You could give like six instructions to an elephant babysitter, and it might do two, and you'd think that was a success. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking it's got to be animals. If you're thinking about this seriously, it's got to be animals that are uh, very social, and I think relatively long lived. So that, like you say, they do have an adolescent period. Yeah. But those adolescent periods in things like elephants, uh, and I imagine things like orca and things like that, are very formative when it comes to learning about how to be that animal, how to look after their own offspring in the future. And you have animals that do uh, like communal care of, of babies and elephants are one of them where you have like elephants within a herd will all help to look after the little elephants of the, the mothers. So too will mm. bats Ooh. having thought of this in you, bat roost they so have like a crash well we've yeah we've thought of the the well i've been thinking of the teenager coming to me but what if we take it to them ah. with all that and then i drop my kid off at a bat roost timmy you're gonna love where you're going yeah 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 exactly you just, <laughs> just mind the crickets on yeah, the floor exactly yeah. <laughs> they'll eat you <laughs> yeah hold on <laughs> don't fall <laughs> why not just don't because first of all you're going to hit eight miles of shit and then you're going to get eaten by crickets um but yeah bats are uh, very long lived longest lived for their relative their size yeah ridiculous um in mammals yeah and they do yeah kind of again there's hundreds of well there's over a thousand species and depending on the one but they do kind of collaborative um yeah crash situations looking after them all yeah i might stick my kid in a bat roost they're either it's either a fish's mouth or a bat roost <laughs> oh god bless you <laughs> some breaking goose news for you listeners as this week the san diego frozen zoo has announced that it's cloned yet another horse from the genes of kaporovich not only is he back, there's now two of him. But there is, of course, only one how many geese. And that brings us to the end of today's show for another week. 
Remember to check out the fantastic free Birder app for all your birding needs and help out the show by sharing and rating this podcast. We'll see you next Tuesday.